Welcome to the Careless Talk Climbing Podcast with me, Sam Pryor, and my co-host, Aidan Roberts. Hello. It's a big one, nay, the biggest one, potentially, this week, as we have uh, Alex Magos, who absolutely needs no introduction, but I will give him one anyway. Um, he has been prolific in on rocks and in competitions. Uh, he, I think, I think he finished even this year as the second overall in the lead, but his list of competition accomplishments is long. Uh, he's also done, even though he's not even considered to be a boulderer, he's done some of the best and hardest boulders on the planet. He's done the finish line in Rocklands, which has come up a lot in recent, uh, recent chats. He did uh, one of the first ascents of lucid dreaming, which obviously was super famous and, and still is still mega hard. Um, and he's majority he's a root climber. He was the first man to, um, on site nine a, uh, he's climbed up to nine B plus, uh, it was first ascent of Perfecto Mundo. Is that him? Yeah, Perfecto Mundo. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But he first sent it that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah. Bibliography. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, all the, yeah. To be fair, I'd be shocked if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard about everything that Magos has done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard of Alex Magos, Call in. How, how how have you got to us? How have you found us? Are you, are you looking for a, a podcast based on Careless Talk, the song? Or <laughs> so you, you've, you've clicked on the wrong thing. Um, but yeah, we, we had loads and loads to chat about. Uh, unfortunately, we did have a little bit of time pressure. So there's, you know, we could have spoken for, you know, hours and hours and days and I had more to cover. So there is stuff that you'll probably be thinking uh, about will, will come up, which perhaps won't because we are slightly limited, but loads of really interesting stuff did, did come up. So hope you enjoy. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Oh, and also if you'd like to support our channel, you can uh, consider joining our Patreon. Uh, we offer two tiers. One gives you access to some extra exclusive content with various like climbing videos and board vids and like stuff like that. Uh, and extra like offcuts from, uh, from uh, the audio editing. And then the other tier um it gives you also access to a Discord channel where you can interact with myself and Sam, pitch questions to upcoming guests, suggest upcoming guests, and also just interact with a nice community of fellow patroons. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in uh, supporting the channel, um, I'm sure the link will be in the show notes. Yeah. I, love, I, love, I love how you just like totally forgot your one job. <laughs> You're one yeah. you, I'll, I'll introduce Alex. You do the Patreon. And just... <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, see ya. See ya. There we go. Hello. Hello. Hey. Nice. Here we go. Perfect. How good to doing? see you, Alex. Good. Good. Is the sound alright like that? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. Crystal clear, actually. 
I think this is it. I think this is finally the time that I'm going to have to commit to learning how to send out a Zoom link early. <laughs> <laughs> we quite regularly get the question. So. Yeah, people just sitting there and I was like, I swear they said they were going to email me. <laughs> yeah, and it's all, it's all good. I mean, with the Germans, you always have to be careful, you know. It's like a minute or two late is pretty much way too late. But <laughs> yeah, you, you packed up and gone. If yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. If you're on time, you're already late. Exactly, that's what we Germans say. <laughs> I used to have a, a joke with my coach, Dickie, and we would literally text each other when we would be like a minute late, you know? It's like we'd meet at a crag and if somebody would be a minute late, we'd text be like, oh, sorry, I'll be a minute late. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shockingly, I actually yeah. have uh, some German heritage, but you really couldn't tell. Based on my timekeeping. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely been lost. <laughs> oh, God. And then, like, my other coach, Patrick, is, like, the complete other extreme. Like, usually we say, when we meet at, like, three, he usually shows up at four, the earliest. So then always when Dick and I say a time, we always say two, so we can make sure that Patrick is there by three. But yeah. Dickie and I, we say three. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I tend to be like almost consistently one or two minutes late for these because I always think I've got time to make a cup of tea. Yeah. And like, I don't want to start the podcast without one. Well, check check this out. How can I flip the camera? Ah. <laughs> oh, oh, double like sizable. Oh, nice. Wow, that's preparation. Two that's peas. preparation. That's like the... Uh, <laughs> The American's small, but it's like almost a litre, so it's it's actually quite, it's quite huge. <laughs> I like it. It's very uh, in keeping. It's like yellow and orange themed throughout. Uh-huh. I'd expect right. nothing Good. less. Uh-huh. <laughs> were, you, were you already a tea aficionado before your time training mm. in Sheffield? Because you're, you're rare in that you actually have spent time in England. Quite a lot of time, actually. Actually, quite a lot of time, yeah. I... I always loved tea for the past 10 years, I would say. And I think I started loving tea in in the States, actually, <laughs> out of all places. <laughs> and that was that was just purely because my first like trip after school went to the States for like four months during winter from like October to February. And we hit up all the, the classic US spots like Red Rocks and Bishop and Waco Tangs and it was so freezing there that pretty much for the whole duration of my trip there for like the whole four months, I was just living off of tea and that because it was warm, just because it was purely because it was warm. And that's when I started drinking tea and I just never stopped. And then obviously when I came to Sheffield, that was like a year later, I think that was my first trip to Sheffield. I saw how people psyched were for their cups of tea and I totally embraced it. And then from then on, always bring back Yorkshire tea whenever I'm in Sheffield and whenever somebody comes from Sheffield to ask for Yorkshire tea and got a good stack at the moment of Yorkshire tea. It's good. Yeah. It's, um, it's so ingrained in like British culture tea. I'm always so shocked when I go elsewhere, I look to get some tea and like just black leaf tea is very different to like, (laughs) (laughs) but you just like make the assumption it's everywhere, but it's not. And then usually when you ask for a tea somewhere else, everybody asks you, are you sick? 
and like, no, I just want a cup of tea. It's got nothing to do with being <laughs> sick or not, but people just assume that if you're drinking tea, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. I'll have a cup of tea and I'll have eight throughout the day. <laughs> Same. When I was in Sheffield, I had, you know, at least 10 cups a day throughout the day and 10 cups. And that's, that's a serious amount of tea. And now, I mean, now I've got like the, the American small cups over here, but I still drink, you know, four of those maybe or five of those a day so yeah. it yeah. keeps tabs on hydration especially if it's cold uh it's, i'm usually not that thirsty if it's cold so if yeah. i'm not drinking tea i'm usually like forgetting to drink water so yeah same you know, i think from november to february like the only thing i drink is tea <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's quite that's a good stat <laughs> could be worse <laughs> it could be worse exactly could be beer <laughs> which a lot of germans do but yeah <laughs> yeah 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 so um yeah because you have yeah like, as sam was saying you've spent quite a lot of time over this way um uh especially around sheffield and uh kind of it feels like you fully embraced uk training culture kind of what really drew you to that or kept you coming back because you came back a few times i came i don't even know but there was definitely a couple of years where i came back three times a year just because i loved it so much and my first trip was actually for the quiff in 2014 and i just got the invitation from uh, from sam whitaker asked me if i want to come over and how was that that comp yeah exactly yeah that that was that, uh, that was my first ever like big comp yeah, that's like right. my also my first I mean I stopped competing at some point again when I finished school and that was sort of also my my first comp after like I kind of finished my comp career and I thought you know what why not I've obviously heard of Hubble and I've never been to the UK so I thought you know what I'll just I'll just go over and I came over for only 4 days or five days and two of those days was the competition and then we went climbing three more days outside one day in Raventour and two more days in Malham and I just enjoyed it so much that I decided to come back the same year in the winter and then I came back the next spring again for training and that just kept on going and I I just loved the like the whole scene in Sheffield the whole training culture with the boards and the fingerboards and Obviously, the facilities were good, but not so, how to describe it, not so like nice and shiny, most of them. <laughs> and that's kind of what I really enjoyed because that reminded me a lot of how I grew up and how I started training in the Franken era. So it just felt like home. And for the first time, I felt like there was a serious amount of people actually really psyched for training. And even if it was cold and miserable, and I just enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? We've got that kind of, um, it's kind of admirable. It's seen as admirable to have like a kind of beaten up board, like the kind of perfect, symmetrical, every hold, nice and shiny board is almost looked down on. I wonder if that's from like a hangover from like the school board, bits of banister stuck on it and stuff. Probably, probably. And I mean, obviously the school board was also one of the the first places I visited on um, one of my early trips and obviously seeing the real thing and knowing Ben and Jerry, that was, was uh, quite special. And yeah, I feel like 
if you're a hardcore climber, you kind of have to visit the schoolroom board at some point just because it's it's history and I feel like I'm I'm sort of in between, like the generation in between, like the generation that's older than I am. It's totally ingrained in their DNA to uh, know all those, you know, the climbers of the early days, like Wolfgang and Jerry and and Ben. But then I look down now on the next generation, sort of, and they don't even know what Action Direct is or what Hubble is or who Wolfgang Gullich is. And you're like, wow, that's what climbing has become to, you know? Like this yeah. place where people purely for like the sake of staying fit visit some nice shiny gyms with like, I don't know, cycling gloves on them to not get blisters on the hands. <laughs> 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 and then they've got no clue anymore what climbing actually is and where it came from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. some some of the comp kids now have actually no interest at all of, of rock climbing. Like they don't want to go rock climbing. It is just the comps. And I, I do wonder if that's going to be the case. If, the, if like when they retire out of comps, if they'll then find rocks or if some people will just retire from it altogether. I think they retire, to be honest. I would say um, like the, um, the modern comp climber is somebody who's purely focused on indoor climbing and on performance. And as soon as they are not peaking anymore and they can't keep up in the comp circuit, I, I, I'd assume that most of them will just stop climbing. Mm. Because it's kind of like quite a cultural thing, right? A bit of respect to the people who suggest that there's a lack of respect, but that's not what I meant. Looking back to the people who really developed like training or like local areas of outdoor climbing, uh, usually it's quite um, it's quite obvious in an area or like it feels like quite a cultural thing within like the little climbing community. But I feel like there's just such a big influx of people that that's being lost so easily. Um, yeah. For but sure. I'm, I mean, and I'm, I'm in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of glad that most people that start climbing nowadays kind of stay in the gyms because if they would, all of them also climb outside, it would have probably a huge problem. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Mm, so, yeah. uh, it's but lost the climbing culture's lost a bit. You've now been doing the competition circuit for long enough that you're like one of the oldest competitors. And like, crazy enough. That that must feel kind of crazy considering when you started you would have been, you know, about the youngest as people I guess tend to be when they first start. But how have you managed to keep the site? Because you sometimes you seem like you're just into the rocks and then you're back on the comp circuit. Yeah. Um I mean I was always psyched for climbing. I only had I think one period in my life about ten years ago after finishing school when I was just training indoors and not seeing rock for ages where I was really not psyched for climbing but for the past 10 years the psych has always been there and i think well for me it's kind of switching between outdoor climbing and also uh, partly comp climbing is the reason for why i i could stay psyched for all those years i mean it's just very very different the motivation is very different so that's for sure one of the reasons why uh, yeah, I stay psyched for for all this time. Like only rock climbing. I mean, I could live with only rock climbing. Let's be honest. <laughs> I could not only live with competition climbing. That's that's just a fact. But yeah, for some reason, I found a good mindset that enables me to enjoy comms and to not always take it too seriously, which kind of make them fun too. And yeah, that's uh, it's it's part of it's part of climbing. It's for me at least. It's a it's a different game. It's like almost feels like at times a very different sport because a competition is not about 
getting to the top, you know? Like, it doesn't really matter if you climb the route or not, if the other competitors don't climb the route either. It's just about sort of performing the best you can on, on a certain day. And that's not at all what outdoor climbing is about. But I think that's, that kind of makes comp climbing very unique and beautiful also in some, in some regards. Because mm. climbing just as a sport in general, uh, the variety within it is kind of, I think, a great like attribute of it. And in terms of like the physicalities of it, but doing comps and rocks, but then also being like so multidisciplinary in both of those as well, like bouldering, sport climbing, even dabbled in speed climbing, but we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> you have to ha- adopt a different headspace for all of them, right? Um, so it's like not just the physicalities of actually doing it that is really varied, but also like the headspace. And I can kind of, I can see how, because you do seemingly do everything. I can't imagine it gets so monotonous. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, you've experienced recently when we went to this Patagonia meet in, in Spain, like how different route climbing already is to bouldering, you know? <laughs> I mean, in, in route climbing, it's it's not about doing the moves. It's like kind of, it's about linking them all together. And very often yeah. bouldering, you kind of immerse yourself into just the beauty of just trying one move or like a couple of moves until you can do them. Whereas in sport climbing, most of the times, like often do all the moves the first, first try, you know, the first day, and then it's just about linking them. So it's like a very different mindset when you go outside, outside climbing, whereas you, well, depending on whether you go bouldering or, or rope climbing, which is, yeah. I think it's cool. I, I like it. And I mean, of course, I'm more of a sport climber because I always, uh, struggled with, uh, with this, this, this idea of going somewhere to only try a move or two. And the problem in bouldering I always thought was if the move or if the conditions are not right or the skin is not right, you're not a hundred percent fit. You'll just go back home, not doing any move. <laughs> which happens a lot i guess in bouldering whereas in sports climbing even if you have a miserable day and the conditions are shit you still end up doing like a few moves even if you're not doing great links and that always felt to me often more satisfying than just like coming back home sort of empty-handed but i also see the beauty in in bouldering and making something feel possible after you know it felt completely impossible the week before for example that's that's something i've i've admired always about bouldering that you start a bouldering project and literally the move feels completely impossible and then a week later you maybe suddenly do it and you're like wow you think back about how it felt like on day one and you're like wow it kind of shifted from feeling impossible to totally possible and that's that's super beautiful and bouldering i actually often think how crazy it is how well the body adapts to stuff like that in a time frame that you can't really have gotten stronger your muscles won't have been they won't be stronger you've like recruited i guess but like how quickly you can like turn that corner yeah i was recently in norway on a bouldering trip and on this one boulder problem sure it was long it had maybe like 15 moves or something but I just could not climb it like the first day. I kept falling in the end. And then I come back three days later 
and I just climb it twice in a row within 15 minutes. And you're like, wow, that kind of shifted really quickly from <laughs> I could not climb it once the first day and then I come back and I could just like run laps on it. And that, yeah. I mean, obviously you didn't get strong. I wasn't even more rested because I still climbed all the days in between, you know, but the body is so unique in that sense that, yeah, it's, I always use as an example, like the pinky front lever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a thing that you saw once, maybe on a picture or on a video and you're like, oh, I want to do that. And it feels completely impossible. And then I invested a little bit of time and within two weeks or 10 days, I could do it no problem. And nobody can tell me that my pinkies within two, 10 days got strong enough to like suddenly do that. It's just that they're recruited enough and your body knows what to do and it suddenly works. And sadly, that worked really well, but <laughs> ends up not translating that well. Yeah. <laughs> Practical application is limited of that of that particular movie. <laughs> Actually, it looks cool though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a pie, that's it's climbing just full of pie tricks. <laughs> but um, I actually think it's it's quite interesting that because then that adaptation of your body, it's not even a long term scale. On like a few days, the scale of a few days is really different to the ability needed in a competition right on in lead competitions you get like one go it's how well your body performs first time on the moves and i wonder if um because you had more i think i feel like it's fair to say you had more foundations in rock climbing before you've done your competitions or i've always felt like you've been like a rock climber who's done well in competitions as opposed to like a competition climber who's like dabbled outside i wonder if like that almost like the difference between your first go and like multi-day worked ability, whether that like that difference changed. Because I kind of wonder that of comp climbers. There's comp climbers that are so good that never climb outside. And I wonder if they were to climb outside, whether they're actually just so good and their like ability would improve the same amount or whether their first attempt and their fifth day attempt is actually quite close together. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. I've wondered that too. And I do feel like that a pure competition climber could actually probably perform quite well in a flash or an on-site just because that's what they've been training. But a lot of them will probably uh, struggle as soon as it goes into trying something multiple days. I mean, I've experienced that with a few... I mean, they still climb outside as outside, but I would still call them comp climbers. And, you know, when they go outside, like very often their first go is, even if it's onside or flash, better than their like second, third or fourth go. And I mean, that's, I think that's definitely different when you're a rock climber. But I mean, I think we, even we as outdoor climbers have experienced that too. And that sometimes in a flash, you're so psyched. But often your second go is not nearly as good as your flash attempt. That has happened very often. And yeah. Yeah, I so, know. It's a yeah. funny, funny phenomenon, yeah. that, isn't it? Yeah. I guess I, it's because it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you sort of want it more on that first go. Well, yeah. I wonder if it is also, I think that might be part of it. Um, We've also talked also, about climbing intuitively as well, haven't we? Yeah, about yeah, first yeah. Go. Like the first yeah, yeah. go, you climb purely intuitively. And then every go after that, part of you is thinking, what did I do last time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to conform to your first attempt, which 
yeah yeah it's never the yeah. best way to do it <laughs> yeah true and i mean that's i think also like the difference between com climbers and outdoor climbers i mean very often as an outdoor climber you don't even go in with a mindset i'm like trying to flash or onside it just because well it's unlikely that you'll flash one of your projects or onside one of your projects so you straight away go in with a mindset or oh, i'm trying to find the best beta and i'm trying to work out all the sections to the point where i can memorize everything to then eventually climb it someday in the future whereas a comp climber i think often has a very different approach that's why most of the comp climbers don't try anything harder than let's say maybe 8b plus or 8c boulders and they don't try anything harder than maybe 9a roots because that nowadays is sort of in the realm of being able to flash it or onsite it so they kind of like their mindset when they try something is i want to give it the best go possible on my first attempt whereas often as an outdoor climber i feel like the mindset is, is very different you don't even you don't even try to flash or onsite it because that's that's not what you're aiming for you're aiming to climb your hardest and that kind of means that the first few days you're just like purely working out the moves mm. And it like, yeah, offers a bit of a different puzzle. And you kind of touched a little bit on uh, the level that you flash on site and mentioned 9A. And obviously, you're the first person to on site 9A. Um, wow, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but for as long as I've known climbing, you've kind of been about somewhat in like climbing media spotlight. Um, and I kind of sort of assumed that that had been the case since you were, since you were a kid but um i watched like uh you did a youtube video with like q and a's about the time when i think it was like i can't remember how many years it was 10 10 year anniversary of that day anyway and you described that actually it wasn't so much a case like that was like quite a pivotal moment kick started you into climbing fame that we associate with you today and i thought that's quite interesting because there's a lot of like psychology involved influx of attention. You get used to experiencing like your own expectations, but then like expectations of others imposed on you as well. I kind of, yeah, wondered how that experience felt looking back on it now. I mean, yeah. for me, I think for my, uh, for my climbing career it was really, really beneficial to not be this wonder kid when I was young, you know, because I really never was. I mean, like if you take, for example, Adam Ondra as a comparison, who was climbing his first 9A when he was 13. I climbed my first 8A when I was 13, you know? So I was, even back then, nowhere near in the realm of being a wonder kid. I mean, I still climbed my first 8A, you know, in one day within, I think, two or three tries. And then I think a week later, I climbed my first 8A plus in my second try. And that kind of went up to uh, climbing for my first 9A and like, three goes or some or something but up to uh up to like the onside of a start of critical and back in 2013 i i kind of was like sort of an underdog i remember my first u.s trip they kind of noticed that i climbed literally uh, every hard route in the red and that i flashed pure imagination back then which was sort of like a big deal i was like an 80 plus flash and I remember reading in the Dead Point magazine, it was like a tiny little magazine from the US, reading that, uh, have you ever heard about, like they were asking about like the future of climbing and then the article said something like, 
oh, have you ever heard about this 19-year-old German kid climbing all the hard routes and flashing pure imagination? No, because like he's totally under the radar. And that kind of showed me that up until I was maybe 19, I was not at all on the map of the climbing world and that completely shifted. But for my climbing in general and for my climbing career, that was very beneficial because I see now how much pressure it puts on like young athletes and teenagers when in their yeah early teen years, when they're like 12, 13, 14, 15, they get so much attention by the media and they're being praised as the next wonder kids and like, you know, the next person to beat Adam Ondler and the next competition climber to beat Janja Garnbrett. I think it's it's hard for them because obviously that expectation builds up in their heads and it's hard to fulfill something like that when you're entering like the adult stage and like the adult competitions. And I often feel like it's, it's not good for the kids. Like it's to have outside pressure is often very hindering for most of them. So do you think for you, it was okay because you were older? Do you think you were able to deal with that kind of sudden media interest uh, at 19 a bit easier than you would have done then if you were younger? Yeah, very, very much so. And it's still when I was 19 and 20, it was still very hard to deal with it because suddenly I realized that I was sort of able to potentially make a living off of climbing, even though that was never really my goal. And suddenly I was kind of earning money with climbing. And when I was like 21, two, three, as not earning a lot, but still making a living off of it and not doing anything else but climbing. And that kind of suddenly gave me this feeling that I have to climb because that is my job, which then resulted with me uh, like not taking any more rest days because every rest day I always felt so completely useless that I couldn't take it anymore. And obviously that was also not the the solution to the problem. But, you know, that, that just shows that even if you're older and even if you're like, 25 to like deal with the pressure of other people expecting you to climb and to perform that's like that's not easy mm. but you yeah, know just imagine something like that as a 13 year old that's like really difficult uh when you're a bit older maybe you have a bit more of an understanding how your motivation for climbing fits in your life as a whole and like yeah maybe you're still finding your feet uh with that when you're a bit younger and so to like suddenly throw in the yeah external pressures is a lot to ask um especially when um because we've spoken about it a little bit before on the podcast but the media and just the climbing public in general are very fond of a comparison um and when when you on site that 9a back then there was a lot of talk at the time it's like wow magos versus andre who's the best aiden's had to deal with it a certain amount um with with will um like people because from the outside it's like you know people love a comparison but it's not necessarily that welcome when you're one of those people like did you how did you find it when people were making those kind of comparisons i mean of course it's unwelcome because you feel like you are like still an individual person and you've got nothing to do with whomever they're comparing you to so there's like in your own eyes you're like there's no reason because people are just very very different you know and as much as people love comparing this especially in climbing it's it's not like in swimming for example you know in swimming i feel like or in cycling it's it's 
quote unquote easier to compare just because you have a certain distance and it's always the same in climbing like that just doesn't exist and i feel like people they they can't they can't live with something that doesn't fit in the box. I mean, humans always want an explanation for everything. They want to know why is this the way it is. And that's also with like climbing and rankings and putting different people in rankings. So when you try to explain them that there is just no comparison possible, that they just don't like that, you know. But obviously, like, it is annoying to compare like to constantly be compared to somebody else just because I mean I know I must also be hard for Adam because or even for Yanya I think sometimes even harder because Yanya like she can't win in a competition anymore you know if she wins it's what everybody expected and if she doesn't win then she kind of lost so like people constantly compare and in some ways that's also not fair towards the athlete but I yeah. guess that's just the nature the nature of uh, of performance sports and people always wanting the better further higher. And it's amazing how much that's imposed on those people as well. Obviously, you get only like snapshots of people's lives from the media. People like make so many assumptions to like impose these comparisons, uh, whether they're genuine or not. And um, Sam mentioned a bit. I get a lot with Will. In reality, me and Will have been friends for years. We'll go training together or we'll go on some trips together. It doesn't feel like a competitive energy at all. And then you come away from it and suddenly like that's something that people tell you about a load and you're like, oh, wait, is that a thing in like in our relationship? And then like Mm -hmm. you kind of go back to it and you're like, oh, no, it's quite fine. So like it is like it feels artificial. I know for like yourself and Andre, well, I don't feel like you knew him before that time. People climbing at that level are like few and far between. And I'm sure that then that does influence your relationship with people when you don't already have foundations in that. It makes it harder to be like, should we go on a trip and climb a route? Yeah, for sure. I like throwing this pressure on it. <laughs> um, yeah, and that kind of makes you feel like, oh, do I have to be competitive with this person just because the climbing media or the climbing world tells me that this is what's going on, you know? And then it was actually, of course, with every other uh, professional climber. And then I went with Stefano, for example, to Spain to climb on Perfecto Mundo together. And it was not at all that, you know, or with Chris, I mean, Chris Sharma is like one of the most relaxed people on the planet, I feel like. <laughs> and he was just purely psyched to climb with some other strong people on the same route, you know. He didn't care at all about comparisons and this and that. And then you realize, ah, you like have to be careful to not get jammed into a corner and then actually sort of like fulfill the prophecy by acting like you need to be competitive with other people. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not like other sports. I mean, it's not about like MMA fighting or like boxing where it's about to beat the other person. Like there's no, like no beating the other person, I feel like in climbing. And, and that's funny because even in competition climbing, it, it always looks as though the relationships between the competitors are really good. You know, from sitting at home, they look like genuinely sincere hugs at the end of like pe- people look genuinely excited for other people when they win. That is funny. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't seem to have built that kind of competitive space. And I, I wonder why that is. 
Mm. Probably because there's not enough money involved yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a good <laughs> distinction. Yeah, we actually um we had um uh Isabel Faust. We chatted to her last night actually. Um, oh, cool. And uh, we we're talking about because she uh, we we're talking a lot about developing boulders and spoke a bit about like closing projects and like competition in that outdoor space. Um, she was kind of like making the rational argument uh essentially at the end of the day we climb we go there to like climb a piece of rock and actually in reality having other people try it with you or like other people on the route is only going to help you climb it quicker and probably have a nicer experience in doing so as well um obviously quite an idealistic quite hard to impracticality um actually think that way but uh I thought it was a nice little surmise of a rational argument anyway. (laughs) Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, in the end, it's just about climbing a piece of rock or like climbing a piece of plastic if it relates relates to competition. And like, I feel like what people often don't don't realize is that it shouldn't matter that much, you know? And I, I totally agree with you that having somebody there to try it with like that's only going to even either make you climb it faster or like enjoy the day much more. So yeah, I don't see the problem with just like enjoying a nice rock climb with somebody else. Mm. You also mentioned earlier something which I thought would be interesting to talk about now that climbing is your career and your job, the days where you're not climbing, you feel like useless or aimless. Um, Conforming to that attitude is in like the long run, probably not the most efficient way to actually be better at climbing or get more climbing done anyway. I saw you quite recently and it feels like maybe you've found some moderation or um, uh, not, not that you're old. I think you're 30, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that you're old, but it seemed to be like more reserved or making tactical decisions around recovery and skin which i feel like has even changed in the time i know you i have quite a distinct memory of when you're in sheffield one year i can't remember what year it was maybe 2017 in the winter or something and i remember you picked up a finger tweak and i found out the very next day when i was picking up to train have like a massive session on the motherboard and your finger was just like mummified in tape it was kind of like you couldn't bend your finger but you were still having a board session (laughs) yeah i mean i was i have to admit i was not the smartest back then i mean that kind of one result i mean i don't even know how that came about i mean it does it did came about because that in my early years as a professional climber i felt like i need to climb therefore a rest day is sort of like it's not even a waste of time but i felt so uncomfortable because i didn't have anything else to do that my solution to like not feel uncomfortable on rest day was just like to not take a rest day which obviously doesn't work but you're quite right that changed a lot in like the last five years because i did one realize that the solution to a not feel uncomfortable on a rest day is not to like not take rest days anymore. It's to kind of give your life a different purpose than only climbing rocks or competitions. And I, I quite enjoy that part of my life now where I'm, I realized, yes, I, I am a professional athlete, but I'm not purely there to climb a piece of rock or to compete in a competition. I also have sort of a mission to like, 
educate climbers about certain things that I find important, you know, whereas it could be about nutrition, it could be about training, it could be about the environment and that kind of filled a lot of like empty space in my life. And it's as well important to me. And that kind of just makes it a lot easier to be able to just take a rest day and be like, ah, okay, today I'm focusing on something completely different. Like I'm focusing on maybe bringing across a cool message and making people more aware about their like environmental impact and that kind of stuff. And when I did realize that even though people would probably label me as a climber, I'm not just purely a climber. I'm still a human being that can have other interests and that can also use his voice, his platform to communicate certain messages that kind of made it a lot easier also with my climbing. And I mean, I think that's also one of the reasons for why I started comp climbing again recently and for why it's been gone not too bad because I, I still value competition climbing and everything, but I don't take it so serious that it kind of hinders me in my performance. And that was always a big, uh, important key for me. Mm. We actually, we had a question based on this from one of our patroon members, uh, us, who wanted to ask a little bit about how you say there about how you're, you like to promote, you know, good eating, environmentalism and things as well. Um, is it right? You've also been quite careful as to who you take as sponsors so you you try and pick companies that reflect those exactly and i mean i'm now in the fortunate position that i can pick my sponsors of course when you're like a young upcoming athlete and red bull comes and says they want to sponsor you that's for you kind of like a super big deal because you know red bull is an amazing sponsor they take amazing care of the athletes the product of course is questionable and other sports like motorsports they sponsor is also questionable but that's something you can't really pick and choose when you are kind of barely trying to survive as a professional athlete but i also noticed in the last few years i'm in the fortunate position to actually do pick my sponsors according to my values and yeah it. I try to live by my values as much as I can. And that also means that I wouldn't want just any sponsor for the sake of getting more money. And yeah, but it, it's always a trade-off. I feel like it's like paying attention to uh, sustainability or the environment. It's sort of a thing you can only do when you're wealthy enough to also think about not just purely trying to survive. <laughs> Yeah. 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 You got to be able to afford your morals. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I quite like how that ties into like being a professional climber. Being a professional climber can extrapolate outside of your just your climbing alone. And there's like a certain role can fulfill as a professional climber to like talk about things which aren't just you doing climbing. And I mean, I can, you can definitely see that with you more in recent years as well. But it's nice that that's almost also helped your relation, your own relationship with climbing and that it's not something you have to do, but you can do it when it's helpful for you or when you want to be doing it. It just gives you purpose on the times where you're not training every day. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that has also, to some extent, probably changed through social media, I guess. I mean, not saying that social media is uh, a lovely thing for, uh, for us, but... 
I feel like also the role in general of an athlete has changed over the past 20 years, you know, back in like the, let's say the early 2000s, you got sponsorship as a climber when you kind of did the hardest things, you know, it didn't really matter if you were a good human being or if you like brought across a good message, like you kind of got sponsorship purely through your performance and, and that kind of has changed in the last few years. Like, Companies yeah. still do value performance, but it's not the only thing they're looking at. And that for some people might be good, for some people might be bad. I mean, I, I don't think it's either or. It's, it's always a mix, you know. And in some ways, it also does annoy me because I do see athletes that, based on their performance, they totally should be sponsored. And then I see other athletes that, based on their performance, they should absolutely not be sponsored, but they still are. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but they just have other values, you know. Modern social media, it's like so dynamic, and it gives you the flexibility to be able to talk about things outside of climbing as well. Maybe if the f- medium to like communicate with the climbing world is a magazine, you almost have to piggyback on your climbing achievements to maybe get any word in on it. People doing the magazine want the news, and maybe not necessarily you talking about the influence of your what you're eating or like. It definitely there's like a nice case for social media in that case. It's it's very malleable. Yeah, you're allowed to put forward the messages you want to put forward. Um, but th- there's also like a certain like natural authority that kind of comes with age as well. Like the longer you've been in this position, the less you really feel like you need to do any... Because you could now stop doing hard rock climbing and stay in your position because you've yeah. done enough stuff. Whereas when you're young and you know you're really good, we haven't really done much yet. You need to yeah. keep you need to keep thrashing for a bit longer, don't you? Um, yeah. But it gets easier, I think, to like divert into bigger topics. Like environmentalism is more important than rock climbing. And once you get to that position, you're able to talk about that without basically people losing interest in you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's also the thing as a young climber. You kind of feel like, one, you need to prove yourself that you've got it. And you also need to prove like the climbing world that you've got it, you know, and once you've been in the game for uh, so long that, I mean, Chris Sharma doesn't really need to prove anything anymore, you know, people know what you've done and he's been pushing the limits for like for the last two decades. Like he can like sort of with his performance, he bought enough like voice, let's call it, let's, let's put it that way. Like, he bought himself enough voice to be able to like speak about other topics as well. And so I got, I guess the natural process of every athlete, like at the beginning of your career, it's always like purely performance based. And then at some point shifts to performance as well as other things you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's interesting to kind of experience this, this shift on yourself a little bit and i mean I th- i'm sure aiden has been in a similar in a similar position now i mean people know that he can climb hard and he's proven it and yeah he also starts speaking about other things like making a podcast i'm sure that's nothing he thought about five years ago <laughs> yeah yeah that's for sure <laughs> yeah 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 that's for sure Maybe, like you're saying, I wouldn't have thought about it five years ago to do that. Now, if you look at media and you have, you have people like yourself or people like communicating, like we were in um, 
we're just an, a Patagonia ambassador summit in Spain and you have people like Norwen and Seb um, who are like using their platforms to communicate. That's almost normalized to like communicate things that they believe in, um, feel are really valuable. Maybe it presents that as an opportunity, whereas that wasn't always there uh, a few years yeah. ago. It feels like yeah. it's happening quickly. Um, Could it, for sure. Could I also say that there is like a potential risk that I can see in that because environmentalism is so much more important to people now, companies have got much more of a financial incentive to fake it as well. So I am also worried that there could be companies that start sponsoring very environmental sort of people really just to try and greenwash what they're actually doing. For sure. And I mean... I'm I'm sure in some in some ways that might be happening already and that'll definitely happen more and more in the future. And mm. that's I, I think that's just because in, in some ways I feel like capitalism always wins and if being sustainable and having the image of a green company is beneficial for uh, you know making more money then there will be companies that you know will pay every price to uh, put that label on themselves. Mm. Yeah. there's but a yeah. weird if companies are doing these things supporting environmental decisions or like change like changing their policies around environmentalism even if it's for sake of in love the long run profitability if a change is happening maybe it's better than it not happening you hope it's done on goodwill that people really like look to the future and like kind of feel the necessity for it maybe it's better than nothing happening sure i do agree i mean before companies don't change at all like i'd rather have them change something even if it's more profitable for them you know but the thing is if we can make sustainability as profitable as possible then that kind of is the incentive for for companies and human beings to actually change the way they're doing things and you know, if the end result and ends up with a sustainable lifestyle, then I'm happy with that. Then you can do it under the name of capitalism. But at the moment, I feel like it's it'll just not be possible without also just like throwing overboard this idea of constant capitalism and constant growth, like. It'll work to a certain point, but at some point, people and companies need to realize that this, like the whole capitalism thing, is not sustainable enough to like just keep on going with it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think um, there's anything that could be done to try and reduce the carbon footprint of the climbing World Cup series? <laughs> yeah, I had a, actually had a great idea. Um, I don't know why they don't implement it. I mean, of course, I didn't like actually go to the IPC and talk about it. But even if you would, like, it wouldn't happen. How about you just don't make the whole World Cup circuit all over the world? You know, I mean, if you take one season, you've got probably like four comms in uh, in Europe, and then you've got like one in Japan and one in China and one in South Korea, and then in between you've got one in Salt Lake City in the US, and athletes end up flying from a to b constantly so my idea was you just take one season and one continent and then you do all the six world cups sort of in the same location on like six consecutive weekends then a it would be done really quickly 
<laughs> which would be a, amazing for me because like comp climbing is sort of like off season <laughs> and you would totally to, totally cut down on like the emissions of flying because like you'd only have to fly once there and once back and not like three times around the globe but mm. that would sort of require like a location that would say okay we'll do six world cups in a row maybe with like different wall shapes and of course logistics wise it would absolutely be possible but yeah mm. probably like capital wise capitalism wise not not as much because it's, it's hey. funny because you were saying earlier about how like you had some doubts about red bull partly because they're so involved with motorsport but currently the climbing world cup model the closest synonym to it is the f1 circuit <laughs> it, yeah. it just flies around sort of arbitrarily around the around the world for no real obvious reason and then it just yeah. throws one out in china at the end of the season yeah. so it makes everyone fly out to china and back and then you know yeah. it'll go europe and then america and then back and yeah. it sort of feels like no one's really thought like oh how can we reduce the impact of this it's just like almost. but that's the thing nobody has really thought about how can we reduce the impact they've only thought about okay who is paying the most money to host the world cup and then we'll just like sort of fit into the calendar the way it fits us best but not with the objective of making it as sustainable as possible that's just that that is not on the agenda yet i feel like there's a case for sustainability in terms of environmentalism but then also so like sustainability in terms of athlete health as well there's there's so many competitions and the season is like so long and so spread out all over the world that I don't know. It seems to just be getting this to do the full season. Seems to just be getting more and more exhausting. It looks sure. such hard work these days. And um, I mean, that's why most, I would say, most athletes don't do the full season anymore, or just because it's it's not really doable for, I mean, performance wise and also health wise to like do six bouldering World Cups and six league World Cups in different locations. I mean. I feel like this year there's only one person who did it and <laughs> that was Serato and he won like the bouldering overall and the elite overall. But then again, he's also like, he's hungry, he's 16 and it's his first season, you know? Mm, but apart yeah. from him, I think there was literally nobody who did that. And Aiden just mentioned about uh, athlete health and recently we had the kind of high profile resignation of Volker uh, Schofel. I uh, hope I've pronounced that roughly right, um, over the kind of uh, REDS issue, the uh, energy deficiency. And someone had to interview him. And thankfully, you interviewed him. <laughs> <laughs> what, did you have any sort of main takeaways from that chat? I mean, the main, the main takeaway sort of was that the athletes and the athlete health is definitely not at the center of our sport <laughs> as sad as it might sound like um the fear of like problems the fear of lawsuits the fear of sort of having like a drama in the in the climbing circuit in the climbing industry was too big to actually put athletes health in first place and actually change something and that's uh, very sad to say but yeah, that's, that's unfortunately, uh, that's unfortunately the way it is. And I mean, I had like quite a few discussions also with the IFSC about that. And I mean, their argument always was and is that it's national federations being responsible to uh, 
make sure their athletes are healthy. It's not the IFSC responsibility. But then obviously, in, I mean, that really doesn't, doesn't work out because national federations have an interest in their athletes performing well. And if national federations are cruel enough, like they don't give a shit about the athlete's health as long as they bring back medals. So they've got like too much skin in the game to sort of say, oh, we'll just not let one of our athletes compete because of medical issues or because of the risk of, of you know, something. And mm. in my eyes, even though the IFC says they're not on paper responsible for the athlete's health, it's National Federation responsibility, I, I would agree that, I mean, and most people would agree that the climate community sees the responsibility by the IFC, like the IFC should be responsible or is responsible in, in the eyes of the climate community. And that's like where the conflict lies because the IFC says they're not responsible, but I would say in the eyes of most people, they are. And then it sort of ends up with national federations not doing enough to make sure the athletes are healthy and the IFC not feeling responsible enough to make sure the athletes are healthy. Mm. So you think the situation is still an impasse, like there's not going to be any changes upcoming? Before the uh, before the Olympics in Paris, I highly doubt that there's any changes being made mm. just because it would create too much drama and it would create too many problems for the IFC that they don't want to deal with. And then they just say, well, we sort of say that we might change something, but in the end... Until past the Olympics, nothing will change because, yeah, it'll just create too many problems for them. Almost a bit of analogy to the way we were discussing environmentalism earlier. It's a shame that we can't appease people's goodwill, them caring for athlete health without like incentivizing it by like policy. Um, yeah. It feels like it was a bit of a lost cause, hence his resignation. But yeah, it's definitely quite sad to see and quite, yeah, stays quite prevalent. The discussion about it feels quite prevalent in the climate community at the moment anyway. I think maybe it's the stuff I've heard about more, but it feels like it's being talked about more than it has been in the past, which is maybe a step in the right direction. Um, Hopefully. I also, I mean, if, if you'd excuse some potential hyperbole here, um, just fancy getting a bit dramatic. It feels it feels a little bit like an existential crisis for me in climbing because if if like the Olympic committees and things cotton on to like top IFSC doctors resigning because it's not a healthy sport and it's not a healthy space, that's not going to do us any favors for staying in as an Olympic sport. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that I feel like that's why it's trying to be swept under the rug as much as possible and to not make it look like climbing actually has a problem. But I mean, the, the fact is that it's not climbing that has a problem. It's like lots of different sports as well, you know. I mean, Falk already said that in like triathlon, in athletics, in so and so many other sports, they have the same problems. But obviously, he's like, he's a climber and he says climbing has the best data there is out of all the other sports. So we could like kind of like lead by example to change something and hopefully also, yeah, give other sports and other federations the chance to implement the changes that the climbing world has made to keep the athletes healthy. 
but yeah, that's I think that's like too wishful thinking that um, we actually like turn the whole thing around and instead of getting climbing out of the Olympics because we are unhealthy, like we can lead by example. But yeah, that's in that's the thing in somebody who like thinks positive it should all work out and like we can be the ones sort of changing like the way uh, like worldwide that athletes are being treated but in a pessimistic view uh, we don't want to change anything because that just jeopardizes our possibility to uh, be part of the olympics and i had a discussion with you about it a bit in spain about like um it being a very temporary on a like longer scale i think it's quite obvious and you'll have seen this because you've done competitions for like quite a few years everyone's getting much better quite quickly and we spoke a bit to our friend billy Rydal about this it's not a competition between the seasons between multiple years it's not a competition of who is getting better it's a competition of like who is getting better quicker like everyone feels they're getting much better and it's kind of like a bit of a race of like improvement and there's quite a temporary solution to being in so much energy deficiency in that really it does impede general progression. You're obviously not able to train and recover as optimally. And so like you'd kind of hope that in like a long scale, people begin to see that as well and like fall behind. But I mean, it doesn't, uh, doesn't address the issue in like an acute phase. Yeah, I mean, in that in that um, scenario, sort of like the problem would sort out itself, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. If people do realize, okay, what I'm doing is not sustainable for the future of my career, and therefore it doesn't make sense and I will change it. But often the problem is that for a season or two, it does work, you know? And that kind of gives people that are in it the idea that, oh, to like to like make it work again all i have to just do is sort of get deeper into it you know like lose more weight and that at some point is a vicious cycle that doesn't work anymore but because of at there like it's incentivized at the very beginning because obviously if from you know one month to the next you lose like a few pounds obviously you'll climb stronger for a certain amount of time just because that's like the nature of the body like we can still perform under like miserable circumstances but at some point kind of like that cat bites itself in the tail and it doesn't work anymore but because it's already so ingrained in a lot of climbers that have started that path their way of trying to still improve is not like change their eating habits and like change the whole training their solution is well if i lose you know a bit more weight it'll work again and that's mm-hmm. that's i think the the danger of it yeah and as you say the, the problem is that sometimes people try and pretend like it doesn't work at all and actually in reality it does work it's just short term but because it works short term we you can see people doing this strategy on the podium from time to time and that's then it you know promulgates faster because it's so like optically there and present yeah for sure and i mean whoever says losing weight doesn't work like it's just it's just plain a lie i mean of course it does work and obviously uh, professional sports is like you you try to uh, get like 
a tiny like one or two percent of improvement like in every way possible and of course then losing weight is will always be a factor like nutrition will always be a factor and i don't even want to say that this should not be the case anymore but i do feel like you can do it in a way where you can make it sustainable i mean i I feel like shauna has always been somebody who has done it quite well i mean she was very open to me about it and saying of course like she does lose a couple of kilos maybe before the world cup but then she like puts it back on because she knows that if she stays on a competition weight all year round like her training will suffer and she will not improve anymore but that's that's somebody who is an experienced athlete speaking about it we can rationally look at weight loss purely uh, as a uh, like performance enhancing thing but yeah. most people that go down that path it's not about performance enhancement anymore it's actually a disease that is like hard to like get out of again i think there's a real positive side to it being very much like in the spotlight of discussions at the moment and people talking about it and it uh a bit more well like informed and educated but there is like a i think maybe it's partly outcome of just the convenience of media and maybe a little signs of cancel culture and the likes there is like a certain attitude of because of the extremes any of it is categorically unhealthy and bad i know what you're saying like losing weight is always going to be like part of like a performance program like at at some point likely climbing is just always going to be a weight-based sport and like you're not just going to be consistently the same weight all year round for peak performance and there's a healthy way in which you can lose some weight and then like return back to your like training weight almost i wonder the degree of scrutiny in which weight loss has been put under whether it will discourage people being transparent about that maybe people will feel like almost a bit of like shame associated with losing weight which means because it's quite hard to put like the responsibility onto every individual to do it responsibly and so usually it's helpful to seek professional advice or like uh look for the perspective of others yeah um, i mean told i totally agree but that's the thing most people can't distinguish between sort of like healthy and unhealthy weight loss and because of the the media and the way we talk about it like it's almost like you said exactly not weight loss is always negative weight loss is always pictured as something like that you should avoid or hide even if you're doing it because you will look like well you know it's just another case of red ass for example but yeah i i do agree like talking about it more openly and seeking professional help is the only way to actually make it sustainable and i mean we don't have to lie and say losing weight will never be a part of climbing because it always will be and there is a way to make it sustainable though Hmm. Am I right in saying that your own diet is now vegan? Are you fully vegan diet now? Yeah. Yeah. Because when you became vegan, did you notice any changes to your climbing at all? Or was it was this a climbing based decision or was it like an environmental based decision or it was an environmental based decision. It was not not very much a climbing based decision, but my climbing did not change at all, I would say. I mean 
people are always afraid that uh, when you become vegan, where do you get your protein from? Like, I feel like that's the most important question that or the most common question you always get as a vegan. And if anything, I feel like I gained muscle mass because <laughs> I'm just eating more protein than ever, probably. <laughs> you become quite, you become more aware of it, I guess. Yeah. You think yeah. about it more. You think about it more. And, and that, and that being said, I mean, I feel like you can be a completely healthy athlete as a vegan. I mean, I'm sure Aiden, you would agree. Uh, mm. You just have to probably put more thought into it, but it's absolutely doable. And yeah, my performance did not suffer at all. So I'd say if anything, that probably was beneficial for my performance. And where did you get your protein from? Well, I've got a lovely sponsor. It's a Tempe company. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get any money for them. I just get pure product, which is completely fine with me. Uh, but Tempe has loads of protein and I absolutely love it in any different form. But I mean, of course, you can supplement with protein powder if you feel like it's hard for you to get enough protein in. But most legumes have protein. Tofu has protein, like Tempe has protein, like soy yogurts, that kind of stuff. It all has protein. So I feel like if you put a little bit of effort into your diet, it's not that hard to actually get enough protein. And we're all not weightlifters. We're all climbers. And with, I would say, maybe a gram of protein per kilogram of body weight or one and a half grams of kilogram, uh, one and a half grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, you're completely sorted on the protein side. And like if you put a little bit of effort into it, that really is not that hard. Mm. And for, people listening as well uh it's not just like you've gone from like the diet you've always had to going vegan you've experimented a lot with a lot of different diets in the past as well right yeah um, yeah for sure i mean i did experiment with a lot of diets before i mean the past probably the past 15 10 to 15 years and i mean i literally went from like this whole like keto trend where you only eat like meat and salad to a uh, like only eating carbs to uh, being vegan. I, I feel like I've experienced it all. And in my eyes, the most healthy and the most sustainable way of eating I found was being being plant-based. And But yeah, th that's the thing. I mean, if, if somebody doesn't inform themselves too well, it, it's hard to find a healthy way for them and a way that they feel comfortable with. As an athlete, you, you always tend to... Uh, put more thought and more energy into into your diet and that also results in in you probably at some point finding the optimal diet for yourself but for the general public it's it's maybe a bit harder and it's in like this mess of information that we have nowadays it's it's super hard just because you know there's like the people that say ah oh, you should eat keto or you should not eat carbs and then there's other people that say ah oh, you should eat vegan and you should not eat too much fat and you should not eat meat so it's it's hard for like a normal a normal person a normal athlete that wants to take care of the health to actually like find the right way that's something that's definitely true the internet is full of people telling you that they have the best ideas <laughs> exactly <laughs> and everybody says their way is the only way <laughs> which is complete bullshit of course that's that's the thing i mean it's the same with training you know like there's no one fits all no one size fits all yeah like, you need to find something that you feel good with and that 
works for you and it's very different it's individual and i'm sure there's like a vegan diet that everybody can feel comfortable with but that doesn't mean that you know the vegan diet in general is what works for you i mean that's the thing like the label vegan diet it's like it can vary still quite a lot i mean there's vegan diets that consist of only pasta and tomato sauce and then there's vegan diets that consist of so much more so yeah that's the thing you just need to find out what works for yourself Mm, I think that's one of the things we kind of picked up on chatting to people and speaking to the odd nutritionists and stuff is that the vegan diet is super healthy and super successful but it is a bit of a high thinking one you've got to you've got to really kind of think about what you're eating and where you're getting everything from it's not quite as like it's a little bit more cerebral than you know yeah. than than some of the other diets that you, it's it's almost easier to eat a balanced diet without thinking about it with other yeah. diets but yeah. that doesn't mean it's less healthy you just got to think about it more exactly yeah. and i mean anyway we put not very much emphasis on what we eat you know i feel like in especially in germany like the i mean the thing that people spend money on is their cars and then the spewing like the thing that people spend the least money on is their food and then you see like you know a bmw m6 and like a porsche standing on the parking lot of literally like the worst supermarket on the planet you know and you feel like that doesn't really fit but it's just what people value more and yeah i think you just have to make people understand that um like nutrition and food is something they should value more than their cars, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in terms of the climate community, it's safe to say as an overgeneralization, often people put a lot of thought into what they're eating. So um, uh, maybe it's exactly. uh, yeah, helpful to <laughs> experiment or figure out what is best, works best for you as well. And then I mean, what that- aligns with what you believe in as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as an athlete, you kind of quickly make the connection that if you eat crap, you'll feel crap, you know, as a normal human being not doing very much sports, you just kind of don't make that connection because you don't, I mean, you might feel better eating something else, but you don't even think about trying something new to make yourself feel better. Like the connection is not there yet. Mm. So, so we've spoken a little bit now about underfueling, and we kind of briefly mentioned the other side of the coin, overtraining earlier on. Uh, oh yeah, I'm a professional in that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you were saying you're trying to do more rest days. How many? How many rest days do you reckon you take now? Like weekly, one, just one. One, one a year. <laughs> um, it, it depends. I mean, um, it always depends. What would you consider like? a pure rest day you know it's Mm. like for some people a rest day literally is i sit on the couch and i don't do anything like if you ask yannick from the german team like for him a rest day is like i don't do anything like for me a rest day still can consist of like yoga and going for like a mellow run stuff like that but i think through my injuries and my inflammations and stuff that i had over the years I kind of find a good balance, like found a good balance of what works for me in terms of amounts of training. And in the end, I I still think that there's weeks where I go climbing seven days a week, you know, but when I was like 19 or 20, I would then climb seven days a week, you know, four hours on the board. And that was obviously too much. And now I kind of 
feel more into my body and I, I do feel like uh, today is a day where it's just it's absolute nonsense to go on the board it's absolute nonsense to absolutely push my body to the limit so it can be that I just go outside and I climb like some seven A's or seven C's outside to just like move and have fun and of course some people would not consider that a rest day but for me that like would be a a day of like low volume training and a day of low intensity training and that would be a rest day but i also just have more rest days in general that people would actually consider a rest day where i just do a bit of stretching in the morning a bit of yoga and that's it for the whole day mm. and you but, manage to no longer feel the guilt the the no no training guilt no no longer feel the no training guilt which is uh it's awesome and i mean i, I feel like i've got so many other side projects now as well that like one rest day a week is not even enough to do all the other things i want to do as well mm. and actually one of those side projects i really did want to bring up it's from our patroons again patroon member luca uh, it sounds like have you taken over a climbing gym yeah i guess i have <laughs> <laughs> at least uh, with my ear with my mate Chris, who are like part owners of uh, an old climbing gym uh, here in in the Franken Jura. What's that? What's the story there? So uh, the thing is, like, they closed I think four years ago, and literally, they on the last day they literally just shut their doors and just didn't reopen anymore because they uh, just like kind of ran out of money. They were kind of old school, old fashioned, and we thought you can make something cool out of it and because it was not very expensive we uh, we bought it with a group of people and we want to build a space that is not just a commercial climbing gym we want to build a space mostly for for workshops for educations for uh, like team trainings that kind of stuff like if you see for example the the german alpine club like the bmc i'm sure they've got every year about hundreds of like climbing courses and might be like beginner climbing courses it might be uh, like coaching courses where they actually offer to uh, well to like make somebody a coach and usually all those like those workshops they are in like full commercial climbing gyms which is annoying for every party it's a it's annoying for like the workshops and it's also annoying for like the customers and for the gym owners so our idea was to kind of create a space where you can literally rent the whole gym for whichever purpose you want it for. And then you can do in there whatever you want. So it could be like a root setting course. It could be a, I don't know, like a, like a climbing course. It could be a, a team training whatsoever. But like our benefit is that there's no other people and you can just do whatever you want. Plus, it kind of gave us the opportunity to build a world-class training facility and uh, have it for ourselves as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like the ultimate training room. Exactly. Pretty a far, much. Cry, far cry away from uh, the Sheffield basement. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't mean that the Sheffield's basements don't work. You know, that's the thing. I mean, I remember, like, of course, that's not possible nowadays anymore, but... A decade ago, Rustam Galmanov became overall world champion with pretty much like a few screw-ons on his door frame. So, 
it's it's the motivation that counts (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah you'd be doing well to be training for modern day uh world cup climbing uh using a door frame (laughs) yeah Yeah, you have to be very talented (laughs) but yeah but we'll see i think um I mean, through our YouTube channel, we'll keep uh, people up to date on what's going on. And hopefully at some point, um, beginning of next year, we can open our doors and uh, and invite people, have a, a cool space for workshops, have a cool space for team trainings and for just people that are cycle climbing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, speaking of, yeah, uh, your YouTube as well and, and projects that you're doing, alongside your own climbing uh yeah you did recently start a youtube channel probably in the last year is it last year exactly and um that could be bad (laughs) no 10 years ago raiden oh (laughs) (laughs) that was a risk (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. no okay um but uh yeah how's that how's that felt because uh it's obviously makes you share quite personal things in terms of like or maybe makes what is usually behind the scenes very public. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I think I I created the YouTube channel maybe like three years ago, but I never really put much work into it. I mean, at the beginning, I was just like uploading uncut sent footage of like this and that. But there's loads of stuff in the Frank and, like Frank and Jura boulders yeah, and stuff on there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That was like during like the the COVID times, but I wouldn't really say that i was really taking care of the youtube channel so yeah you're absolutely right we started with the youtube channel like pretty much exactly a year ago last september and i mean obviously we saw other professional climbers having youtube channels like magnus mitbe being like the biggest one and being super successful and at some point chris and i and max a friend of ours was also in it with us we kind of felt like we'd have so much fun stuff to share and so much interesting stuff to share that we should also like put my effort into the YouTube channel thing. And at the beginning we thought, ah, it would be a, a lot of work to get a filmer to edit it and to film everything. It would be really expensive. So one day we literally just decided to pick up the camera and do it ourselves. And to our very big surprise, People really enjoyed the uh, very unprofessional filmed and edited YouTube stuff because we did realize it's not so much about how the video is made. It's about what's in the video, you know? And that being said, we're still trying to like make it more professional and like improve a little bit. But people were just enjoying that we were genuinely just having a good time and like sharing stuff on YouTube that we thought is important. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun little project. Isn't it nice? It's good to hear. That feels like exactly what's happening with this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but is it is it nice that you can like get so much personality across in YouTube? Like we had people on on the Patreon saying, like, I've been watching Alex's YouTube and I never knew he was funny. Like because, <laughs> well, in, in, only because Instagram, I'm German, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but like in Instagram, you can't really get that side of your you know personality oh. across. Like Instagram is so limited in yeah in sense. well it's easier to tell uh, like a funny joke in a 20 minute youtube video than in a 20 second instagram clip 
yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I want to change a little bit the reputation of uh, us Germans uh, not being funny. I think we're hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I did want to talk about this a bit as well um, in terms of obviously publicizing quite device. I guess this is maybe more in um on like instagram and things but like especially around like your diet and like kind of just publicizing more divisive topics there's a lot of kickback to it you obviously like publicize a lot of the decisions you make and like kind of the reasons why you make them around quite like uh polarizing um discussions and uh obviously get a lot of support but a lot of kickback as well a lot of like pushback i mean like a friend of mine said, well, let's make some people angry, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something also just kind of learned over the years to deal with uh, the kickback and the pushback. That's something you will always get. And that's the thing. No matter what you do, you'll always have somebody who will disagree. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just the way uh, the way it works. And if you can sleep well at night even if you get a lot of pushback and kickback then that's that's even better i mean i remember like the one youtube video we posted about like a meal that i cooked and then ate there was so much pushback and so much kickback but i kind of made it fun as well you know because uh, i'm not taking myself too seriously and sometimes it's fun when people actually do take everything too seriously and yeah, I, I try to always tell them, you know, take everything always with a grain of salt. So I diet Say some. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like not your food, your food without a grain of salt because uh, salt's not good for you. And that already gave me so much kickback. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of like don't try and be somebody else just because you see what they do. Like Exactly, exactly. Still use your own brain. I mean, that's helpful anyways, in most cases. <laughs> Generally, it's a use, useful advice for yeah. more than just what you eat. <laughs> I think it, also, it helps if, if there's like a few people involved in something, it is easier if there is some like negative comments because any time you're on the internet and people are anonymous, there's going to be negative comments like forever. For sure. But when you're working with other people, I think it's easier to kind of laugh them off than if it's just like just you by yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's why I always like with a YouTuber, always try to have like a few people on there. And I mean, Chris and I op- often have like opposite opinions and that kind of makes it makes it fun too because like he's not vegan, you know, but like he doesn't mind that I am and I don't mind that he isn't, you know. And that's something we also want to bring across and show people that like you can have your opinion, but it doesn't mean you have to force your opinion onto other people. Mm. You're not conforming to that role of uh, claiming you've got the best idea about everything. I mean, I do do have the best idea, but (laughs) people will figure that out eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Are you you now at the end of your comp season? Is Is the comp season over? The comp season is over for me, yeah. So what what happens now? Where where are you where are you psyched for? Well, now it's on season again. Now it's rock climbing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is what you've been training for the whole exactly. summer. Exactly <laughs> what uh, what I've been training for throughout the comp seasons. 
I mean, there's always more projects than time. That's the thing. Huh? I mean, I'm sure Aiden, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you both know what I'm talking about. Like, the crisp days are counted, sort of, and you kind of want to make the most out of it. So I'll uh, see where, uh, where I'll get to. I've got a few projects here and there. I've got still a few projects I want to check out, but uh, it's always uh, many more projects than time, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah. We There's actually no had some of rock. We had yeah. some people asking as well whether you might be interested to to take a look at the really like um, famous current big projects like uh, Excalibur or Project Big or Checks Notes. I actually, silence. I actually, <laughs> I had a look at Excalibur uh, beginning of this year in April. Uh, I went there for ten days or so and had a little play on it, and I really like it. It's it's good fun. Like you rarely get such a hard road that's so short. And I really enjoyed the climbing just because it's, I guess, because it's like a shitty little limestone crag and it reminds me of home, the Frank era. But uh, <laughs> that really was uh, really cool. And Project Big also looks really good on video, I have to admit. Silence, maybe not so much because, well, for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, the upside weird, down roof crack. Exactly, the upside down <laughs> roof crack. But... That being said, like a lot of stuff in Flat Angle looks really amazing. And anyway, I feel like in the future, like, or the future of climbing will go also further north and not so much only further south towards France and Spain. So, yeah, I'm sure there, I mean, Norway has so much rock, I'm sure there must be much more. So, yeah, we'll definitely hear more of Norway in the future. Mm. Yeah, no, because yeah, you recently had that trip there and really it looked quite, quite incredible. <laughs> incredible. The rock, I mean, no, the rocks really should don't go there. It always rains. <laughs> no, it's, it's really, it's lovely and the rock quality is amazing and I had lot, lots of fun there. Uh, and I think we'd be remiss seeing as we're basically a bouldering podcast or <laughs> primarily a bouldering. I mean, you did you witness Aiden's attempt on a rope doing the Patagonia? I, uh, I Alex did. was very tactful about it. Yeah, he said, I did. you might have noticed how different route climbing is to bouldering in the conversation. <laughs> that being a very kind way of saying, yeah, I was getting pumped out of my mind on very easy two-foot routes. I, I imagine you noticed about eight moves in how different it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, in a, you know, in a 7B route, it kind of managed to uh, like squeeze in a 70 ball at every quick draw. <laughs> <laughs> like front on pinching two foot. Yeah. yeah. But, good. But, it's good to see though. I've got I've got to ask, have you got have you got any boulder projects or boulders you're psyched on? Um, I mean I have also checked out Alfane uh, with Yannick beginning of this year and like I, I struggle quite a lot with one like the slotty holes on the left because I can't fit my fingers in there. But that that feels like a good project and doable for sure. That that's fun. But I mean the the obvious one to try just because of its its fame and also it, its looks is like burden of dreams. I mean it would be cool to at some point go and just give it a go. Just because uh that that for me is what bouldering is all about, you know, like a steep wall with, with small holes. So if if I'd have to pick one, then probably that one. <laughs> well, you can also pick about, up the holes. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's about as close to a board as rock climbing gets. Exactly. Well. Exactly. <laughs> which makes it more appealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. And I think y- Yannick also is quite keen to check that Yannick out. Yannick is super keen. I think he might be going there this year. I, I could imagine just because, I mean, I don't see why not. I, I, I genuinely almost think that physically he might be the strongest in the World Cup circuit at the moment. Like when it just comes down to like pure physique. Like not necessarily like the best climbing style, but I'm sure he can do stuff on a board that nobody else can, just because he is insanely strong for some reason. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, I actually climbed with him. It would have been not the trip that you and Gino with him, but um, he he came I think just before the comp season, and I think after like the training season, he had like a week and a half or something um, before the comps um, yeah. started, and. Uh, Yes, I've I always quite enjoy climbing with him. It's like a really noticeably different style. I think <laughs> I was climbing a lot with like Giuliano and Dave when I was out there, and they're like their minds are just they go straight for like puzzling, understanding like nuanced movement and like kind of super technical climbers. And then Yannick is like kind of like he's like ah, I don't need that crap. Like <laughs> I'm just going to try really hard. <laughs> We'll pull on from the start, like nearly every go. <laughs> yeah, like... It's so good because sometimes it's like, it's not, I don't want to say he has no technique, but sometimes it's like literally smashing about and somehow gets to the top. And then you feel like, well, it, it, it could have not been that hard because he like just climbed it in a few goes and then you tried yourself and you're like, wow, it's actually really, really hard. And you just have to try so hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's quite like a risky style, but mm-hmm. He seems to do yeah, quite consistently works out for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's good. It's good. It's a good addition to the to the World Cup circuit, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's nice. Maybe it came up less this season, but last season when it was it was still like quite coordination, movement y very powerful as well. And there was like definitely rounds and boulders where like you could kind of see that. You could kind of see him dominating anyway. Yeah, I mean, I remember last year there was in Brixen where he won the, mm. his first World Cup. There was one boulder in semifinals, like crimpy test piece with like some campusing in the middle. And I mean, if we're honest, like every other World Cup climber looked like a total beginner on that boulder and he was the only one to climb it, you know? And then afterwards he was like, oh, did you also think the last move was so hard? And I'm like, Yannick, no person got to the last move. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because for him, he said, well, the last move was the hardest and like no other person got there. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a big flex, isn't it? I would have said that regardless, even if it was the easiest move. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's so good. So he can, he can be, uh, yeah, flexing quite a lot sometimes, but he can also like just be like a super nice, genuine guy always quite enjoy watching those kind of boulders like it's kind yeah, of nice yeah, when you get so the odd boulder which is like oh, okay who is the strongest kind of thing yeah well the answer is yeah i think it's the strongest that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think we're, we're rapidly running out of time because we've got a hard stop in five minutes but all right i've got, sure. a cu- oh, yeah. I've, got I've got a couple of really quick questions for you um suika one of our patroons wanted to ask you how many rolls of tape you get through per year? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quite a few. I would say at least 15. <laughs> like 15 of the big Luca tape rolls just because, well, there's rarely a day where I don't climb without tape. 
Because you're famously split prone, aren't you? Do you yeah. have do you have dry skin or wet skin? That's the thing. Like on the tips, I've got wet skin, and in the creases, I've got dry skin. It's like a bit of a shitty combination. <laughs> I I feel like, but <laughs> I also don't know why that is. That's the worst of both worlds. That's got to be as yeah. bad as it gets. Yeah. Yeah, and I've also got fat fingers, so that's like double annoying. But actually, to fun fact, I created my YouTube channel solely to upload the taping tutorial video I did at some point. That was like the purpose of the YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) That that was actually quite a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that with Liam Lonsdale? That was with Liam Lonsdale, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was time ago. Um, And. Similar, similar question from LVO wanted to ask, because you're, you're really well traveled. If you, if you had to pick one, where's your favorite climbing destination? And do you have any climbing destinations that you really love that are kind of like not in vogue, not popular? So people don't go there, but perhaps they should. Mm, I guess not in vogue is the Frank Mura, just because it's very, very brutal. And it's also a very good climbing area in terms of how much there is. I think the Frank Mura is amazing and if i'd have to pick another one i mean i don't want to pick something super obvious like spain or something although i really enjoy margalef how like after my recent bouldering trip to norway like the northern countries are probably amazing and i feel like there's so much more to develop and as well like further east in europe like albania romania those countries there must be so much rock that we haven't discovered yet so I could imagine that the future of climbing is also in those countries. Mm. Mm. Mm, yeah, it's nice. I like it when quite often you chat to climbers and they basically feel like the best area in the world is the one they've just been to. Because <laughs> <it> always, <laughs> we're always like constantly getting blown away by how good it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and like all like these quality untrodden spots can kind of almost stay in the shadows from like the yeah, the popular spots that are in vogue. Even yeah. in Norway, I feel like l- lots of the time people don't see far past um, Flatanger. Yeah, yeah. That's because Flatanger got a lot of attention now through hard climbers and hard climbs, which kind of brings it onto the map because there's more videos and more posts about it. And mm. I feel like that's with every area like that. If strong people go there, it yeah becomes trendy just because you it's more on the map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Nice. nice. Well, I think we're pretty much, uh, we're finishing on time. We're at, at the point you need to, yeah, drive away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I can, I can uh, on the German highway, kind of the German autobahn, I can like make up some time, like, make up some time, like a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time, Alex. Um, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. It was awesome. It's been uh, yeah, really nice to have you on. <laughs> I feel like this is the moment for you to destroy your credibility and we can watch you getting into your BMW M6. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I mean, I, I do have to admit, I do have a little bit of a fast car, but it was kind of like one of like the stupid things I did in my youth, you know. <laughs> you, you learn when you get older. It's not as bad as a BMW M6, but... I'd say I wouldn't buy that car again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's bright yellow. 
kind of bright yellow. <laughs> Which you is. wouldn't change. <laughs> no. I mean, that's the reason I bought it, because it was bright yellow. That was solely the reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Oh, nice. Well, thanks well, um, so much. Thanks so much for coming on. That was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys. And uh, enjoy the beginning of rock season. Oh, I will. <laughs> Don't you worry. You guys do too, and I hope I'll see you guys in Sheffield at some point again. Oh, yeah, yeah. perfect. Hope Sounds so. good. Nice. Take you soon, Alex. Cheers, Speak mate. soon. Bye, guys. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye. Bye.